0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time of the week where we talk about science and skepticism. So it's going to be another hodgepodge tonight. Uh, Lots of interesting things going on, all sorts of uh, (laughs) interesting things to talk about, interesting animals to talk about, uh, just all sorts of fun stuff. But first, I want to wish everyone a happy International Women's Day. So, um, I will be trying next week. Uh, I should have next week a uh, show talking about amazing women in science, past and present. Uh, there were other things that I kind of wanted to talk about this week, and. Um, so I just didn't get to it for this week. I do want to remind you uh, that, as always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page. And you can find this and previous shows on uh, your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So for tonight, let's begin by talking about what is basically a perennial problem uh, for modern people, which is something that is going to be happening this Sunday night. I am, of course, talking about daylight savings time. Uh, So remember, it begins Sunday at 2 a.m., couple of years ago, I don't remember exactly how many, they pushed it back even further than it had been. It used to be in April and now it's at the beginning of March. So the problem with daylight savings time is that not only is the practice outdated in our modern society, it's also actually kind of dangerous. Um, You know, I still remember watching several, a couple of years ago, um, John Oliver did a great bit on it. You know, it was one of his how is this still a thing (laughs) um, episodes. But um, yeah, so let's talk about it a little bit. Every year, hospitals report around a 24% spike in heart attack visits around the country on the Monday following the change. But what's interesting about that is that it doesn't change the overall incidence of the disease. So basically, it seems to be that what happens is that someone is going to uh, be having that heart attack or having something that displays as a heart attack, you know, in some window uh, within a couple of days. And because daylight savings time in the... uh, Quote unquote spring uh, deprives us of a little bit of sleep. That little bit of sleep that we lose is just enough to disrupt some people's systems enough that the heart attack then happens slightly faster. And so more people end up having it on that Monday. And so, you know, there is, this is, seems to be a fairly Uh, consistent causal link because conversely, there's actually a 21% decrease in incidences during the fall change when we actually get more sleep. (laughs) That's how fragile and susceptible your body is to even just one hour of lost sleep, uh, notes sleep expert Matthew Walker, who wrote a book called How We Sleep. And what's worse for me personally, I think, uh, being the uh, <laughs> uh, leftist that I am, night shift workers are actually only paid seven hours rather than the regular eight, according to a federal law. Now I realize they actually are only working seven hours, but that's not their fault, um, and I just I find that to be very distressing, personally. <laughs> um, and so. Daylight savings time also leads to more injuries at work, more strokes, and uh, possibly even to a short increase in the amount of suicides. Again, loss of sleep is really hard on our bodies, on our psyches. It actually is not negligible. And so, uh, daylight savings time is was first attributed to a man named William Willett. He was a British man who wrote a pamphlet in 1907 called The Waste of Daylight. Um, (laughs) And so he argued for an extra 80 minutes of sunlight in summertime. Now, the British didn't actually take this up. The first country to implement the idea was actually Germany during World War I. And they did this, obviously, in order to save energy in the evenings. If you had more sunlight, then you used electrical lights and other things a little bit less. The U.S. actually followed suit in 1918, but it was actually repealed the next year by Congress, in part because, contrary to some of the uh, popular beliefs about daylight savings time, farmers actually rallied against the measure because their schedules were directly tied to the sun. So moving things around actually hurt them. And It turns out, though, that despite the fact that the federal law was repealed, not everyone followed suit. Many cities and towns actually chose to keep the new schedule. So by the mid-60s, there was basically chaos across the country where local time could actually be different from town to town. Uh, One of the stories I was reading said there was a train ride between two cities and on that train ride you would go through six different times. Um, So clearly that's not good, especially as we move into a more modern, uh, connected, Uh, society, you can't have everybody be on local time. Um, You know, that's almost going back to sort of medieval time, where basically local time was based on when noon was uh, where you were geographically. And so in 1966, Congress passed the Uniform Time Act, which set the time of daylight savings for most of the country. I say most of the country because Arizona and Hawaii have both opted out, because for a very good reason, actually, they prefer the cooler evenings rather than having the extra sunlight that more northernly states enjoy. So it's great for us to have more sunlight, but in a place like Arizona or Hawaii, where it's really warm all the time, that beating down sun, they'd rather have it get <laughs> the sun go down earlier rather than later, um, which makes total sense to me. And obviously, these days, we are not really saving very much energy. Um, though there is some evidence to suggest that it helps to reduce crime somewhat. And in certain places, uh, you know, in more northerly climes, it can actually help people have uh, more motivation to exercise. uh, Because, you know, if you I know that in the middle of winter, when I get out of work and it's already dark, I don't want to do anything except for just go home. Um, And so that can definitely help people be more uh, motivated. And, uh, you know, but they're really small amounts, And it turns out that not all countries participate. In fact, less than half of all countries actually make the switch. And so, again, with not even all of the states doing it, it's kind of a hard sell for some people. And so um, there are actually a couple of states, uh, California and Florida, that have actually both voted to ditch daylight savings time. But it turns out that a state can't just do that. Uh, it turns out that they have to request permission from Congress in order to do that. And so neither state has yet been granted permission from the government to do this. So although the, their voters voted to get rid of daylight savings time, they have to basically keep it for now because the government won't yet give them permission. Um And so, yeah, it's really interesting. And of course, uh, there's the other issue here in the Northeast that uh, is sort of related, but not uh, actually connected to daylight savings time, which is that uh, the New England states are uh, toying with the idea of moving from Eastern time to Atlantic time. Um, and so that would be really interesting, but that's a that's a slightly different topic. <laughs> so uh, for tonight, I just want you to uh, remember this weekend to manually set your uh set forward your analog clocks before you go to sleep on Saturday. uh, So you don't wake up confused and bewildered on Sunday when your phone and your uh, wall clock say different things. And um, as many people also suggest, uh, you should definitely check the batteries in your smoke detectors to make sure that they're working properly. It's a great time to do that. Okay, So let's move on now and talk about more uh, pure science-y kind of stuff. So let's start tonight with a really cool milestone in space. This uh, does sort of tie into the theme of today of National uh, or International Women's Day, because NASA is planning on March 29th to have the first all-female spacewalk. So that's very cool. Uh, Christina Koch And Anne McLean will leave the International Space Station, or the ISP, in order to replace some batteries that were um, put in there last year need to be uh, taken out. So not only will both astronauts be female, ground support will also be given by flight director Mary Lawrence and Kristen uh, Facul of the Canadian Space Agency, at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Texas. So that is very cool that it's going to be women both in space and on the ground. And so the first woman to be included in a spacewalk was Svetlana uh, Savitskaya on July 25th, 1984. Now, that seems pretty cool, but... Of 213 spacewalks at the ISS, um, the ISS, I should say, the International Space Station, not uh, ISP, I don't know why I thought that, um, since 1998, uh, for a variety of tasks and experiments, uh, fewer than 11% of more than 500 astronauts who have been to space have been female. And spacewalk teams have either been all male or Or male-female. And so in fact during the almost 60 years in which we've been sending humans into space only four expeditions have included two female members who were trained for spacewalks. So it's very exciting to be uh, changing that and moving forward. And so McLean is actually already on the ISS and has been active on Twitter. Uh, One of the things she's been doing is showing off a stuffed uh, Earth toy um, that's been quite a hit and is apparently connected to SpaceX. Um, And so um, Ko or Koch will lift off on the 14th if all goes well. And so their walk should last around seven hours. And what's really cool is the fact that McLean and Koch were actually part of the 2013 NASA uh, class of astronauts that was 50% female, which, you know, is kind of what we're looking for <laughs> pretty much everywhere, please. And thank you. Um, so, Yeah. Okay, so let's let's talk about SpaceX for a minute. Uh, Credit where credit is due, Uh, though I personally do not like Elon Musk, his company is doing some pretty cool stuff. One has to admit, Uh, we should all be excited that SpaceX's Dragon space capsule has landed successfully today after its rendezvous with the ISS which included a test of the craft's autonomous docking sequence, which was a big thing. People were like really interested in whether or not that was going to work. And it turned out to work beautifully. It docked successfully. The astronauts that were already on the ISS were able to actually unlock the uh, airlock and actually go into the craft, um, because the craft is eventually designed to have humans in it. That's that's what it is. It's supposed to be able to actually take humans into space, so there's room to go in there and look around. Um, and so this is very exciting. Not only was it able to dock and undock successfully with its autonomous um, programming, it was also able to properly survive reentry, which is a huge, huge thing. Um, And so this is a success that will hopefully lead the US back to being able to launch astronauts into space, from the actual, you know, US. It turns out, um, if you didn't know, no manned space flights have actually left the US since the shuttle was retired back in 2011. So we've continued to send astronauts to space. But we've been doing it by paying Russia uh, to the tune of over $80 million at this point, uh, to take our astronauts into space on um, Roscomos space. Space flights. So, yeah, we've actually been going to Russia to do this. And uh, despite our other differences with Russia, there's a, you know, it's one of those sort of camaraderie things or um, sort of glass nosed things uh, where, you know, scientists from Russia and America, despite how we may or may not like each other's politics they've, you know, had this agreement forever that they will work with one another. So um, that's actually been pretty good, except for that one (laughs) weird uh, incident a couple of uh, months ago, where, um, you know, a couple of the uh, higher ups in Roscomos for a minute were trying to blame Americans for the leak on their, um, on their craft, but hopefully that's all blown over now. (laughs) Okay. So let's move on to some more good news, but completely different. Let's talk about animals for a while, because animals are always a good time to talk about, um, at least the stories I pick. Um, You know, I do, there is a lot, there are a lot of stories that I don't talk about. um, And I just want to, again, kind of talk about the fact that as much as I am, you know, I personally am kind of a cynic and, uh, you know, I personally tend to have a dim view about things. I am trying really hard on this show to talk about the things that are a little more uplifting, a little more just interesting and good. I don't want to spend a lot of time dwelling on um, the bad things. And, you know, it's not that I don't think they're out there and I don't think they're important. Um, I just... I like to try and be a little bit upbeat. It's good to go into the weekend with a little bit of uh, fun science knowledge rather than just spending, you know, 55 minutes talking about how climate change is going to kill us all. So yeah, let's talk about animals. (laughs) So, the Formosan clouded leopard is a subspecies of the already rare clouded leopard, uh, which was actually disc- declared extinct in 2013. It had last been spotted in Taiwan in 1983. Now the animal known in the area as the li ul had been rumored to have been making appearances in Taitung County's Darren Township. Um, and so this is all in Taiwan. Um, on the island of Taiwan. And so a group of rangers has been patrolling since last summer, trying to find proof that the species was still out there. Village chief of the Paiwan tribe, uh, Keo Cheng Chi, noted that rangers have been working since last June and that the tribe has held meetings to discuss sightings and to ensure that hunters were kept away from the area. And so it's being reported that a group of Formosan clouded leopards were seen hunting goats on a cliff, as well as another spotted running up a tree after uh, apparently examining some scooters. It was looking at these scooters like, what the heck are these things? (laughs) And so uh, these animals are known for their dusky gray markings and were once the island's second largest carnivore. And of course, though, as with many animals uh, that are threatened with extinction, they've been pushed out of their habitat by logging and other human activities and basically have been forced to retreat into the mountains. They're actually considered sacred to the Paiwan tribe, and uh, they're actually still protected by Taiwan's Forestry Bureau. And so the Paiwan have petitioned the government to stop logging so that the animals could be confirmed to still be alive and studied. Uh, Professor Liu Liu, Uh, a professor at the National Taitung University's Department of Life Sciences, said that a group of indigenous hunters uh, told him that they had killed several cats during the 90s, um, but burned the pelts in order to avoid uh, government sanctions. And so he has told that local news outlets that he believes the sightings are real and hopes that the Taitung... uh, Forest District Office will confirm the sightings so that scientific research can take place to help preserve these amazing animals um, and you know they didn't have a picture of an actual um Formosan clouded leopard but they had a picture of just a sort of quote-unquote normal uh, clouded leopard in one of the um, articles and it's just such a beautiful animal and so I hope that they will be able to get pictures of the Formosan uh, clouded leopard and that it will be able to be saved and will be able to rebound um, because big cats are the best. (laughs) All right there are many other animals that are very awesome but you know uh, it's funny because my two favorite kinds of animals, it seems, are cats and uh, and birds other than cephalopods. But I feel like they're kind of in their own. Uh, <laughs> I always think of cephalopods as being kind of distinctive. They're kind of like the mushrooms of animals. Um, but anyways, it's just my weird, <laughs> my own personal weird idea about uh, animal taxonomy. <laughs> okay. So let's move across the globe to where the icy waters off Cape Horn, Chile, um, or to the icy waters off of Cape Horn, Chile, where a group of killer whale- whales or orcas uh, are known to be patrolling the Southern s- Ocean. Now, the Southern Ocean is basically, if you look on the map, there's sort of that band of water at the very bottom that is surrounding Antarctica, and that's called the Southern Ocean. And so uh, now this might not seem like much of a story because, you know, we've all seen orcas for the most part, if not in person at a large aquarium, then in uh, documentaries or movies, Um, some uplifting, some not so much. But it turns out that these are not your ordinary orcas. They are a seemingly distinct subspecies that researchers refer to as type D, now, for years, the existence of this species was only a rumor bandied about by fishermen who talked about a different kind of orca with smaller eye markings and a slimmer, leaner body. The only real evidence beyond the tales was tourist photos and the reporting of a mass stranding on a beach in New Zealand in 1955. It turns out that they actually got samples from that uh, 1955 beaching, so that was actually pretty helpful. And so uh, with sort of all of that evidence, a paper uh, was published in 2010, which basically said, you know, this is a distinctive subspecies that is almost certainly out there. But it wasn't until 2015 that the first video evidence was captured of them. actually very pretty. Uh, They're very sleek. And uh, they look a little bit more, uh, even more a little bit ninja like because they have very small white patches around their eyes. So they're almost all this sort of deep gray, uh, shiny black. But anyways, scientists from the US National Oceanographic Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration or NOAA uh, aboard the research vessel Australis got close enough to the orcas to take three tissue samples the team spent three hours observing and collecting data about a pod of orcas that they were actually able to find. Um, And so they were able to collect those tissue samples using a crossbow dart, uh, which doesn't hurt the animal. Um, It's just taking a tiny, tiny piece off of their um, bodies. And, you know, they've got a lot of Uh, padding blubber. So they're fine. (laughs) When that happens, the pod was actually 30 strong. So you know, these are not, um, you know, this was a big, uh, clearly well established pod of these animals. The video um, captured was of the animals both below and above the water. And they also were able to get recordings of their uh, songs, of their various calls, so that they'll be able to, you know, compare that to the other species of orca that have, um, that are much more well known. And so, uh, like I said, they did actually have samples from that 1955 stranding. So tissue and tooth samples from that um Occurrence were actually sequenced back in 2013, and this showed that type D orcas are indeed a separate subspecies, genetically distinct from the other three established species. Genetic evidence suggests that they diverged from their relatives around 390,000 years ago. And so if genetic samples taken from the new encounter match those of the 1955 sample, it'll be quite the scientific coup. We are very excited about the genetic analyses to come, said marine ecologist Bob Pittman of NOAA's Fisheries Southwest Fisheries Science Center, uh, who has been searching for these orcas for over 14 years. Type D killer whales could be the largest undescribed animal left on the planet, and a clear indication of how little we know about life in our oceans. Sigh. <laughs> Okay, despite their elusive nature, the type D are very distinctive from other types of orcas. As I mentioned a little bit above, they have a more bulbous head, uh, which more closely matches a pilot whale, uh, more narrow and pointed fins, smaller teeth, and the aforementioned smaller white markings surrounding their eyes. Now, it turns out that even though I've kind of been talking about these as distinctive subspecies uh, and species sort of a little bit interchangeably, uh, sorry about the imprecise language, it's hard because they're actually not considered distinctive subspecies at the moment. They are actually all still listed under one scientific name. So um, they are all listed as Orchinus orca. Um, And so it's a little bit weird. Um, And some people have in the past talked about how, you know, maybe we need to revisit this idea because they're very different. They're very obviously distinct, uh, at least subspecies. And uh, so this discovery and proof that there is yet another distinctive subspecies, hopefully will finally prompt some taxonomists to uh, go in and actually reevaluate this idea that they should all be under one rubric. So um, type A orcas are actually the largest type and they mostly eat mink whales. Type B are a bit smaller, a little bit grayer. Uh, They have larger eye patches and they feed primarily on seals. Now, type C is the smallest with oblique eye patches. They're almost kind of like um, that kind of teardroppy paisley uh, shape, and they are more grayish, and they actually feed primarily on Atlantic cod. Um, and so, you know, they're all very distinctive, and that's another big reason for, you know, thinking of things as subspecies is because they all have different uh, foods that they rely on, different um behaviors based on that sort of thing. So yeah. Um, And of course, orcas are known to be quite smart and um, sometimes quite terrifying and ruthless, but beautiful nonetheless. Um, Beautiful animals, really dangerous. There seems to be some connection in nature. I don't know why so many incredibly beautiful animals are incredibly dangerous. Um, I'm not sure what's going on with that. I mean, I'm sure it's just coincidental in some way, though, you know, there must be some sort of evolutionary thing going on there. Like, you know, maybe it's to lure you in with like, oh, it's so pretty. And then, you know, it tries to eat you. Okay, (laughs) let's move on now from elusive animals to weird ones. Um, This is a story that has been uh, popping up that I just think is very weird and fun. Uh, so it does talk about, um, the, uh, digestive tract. So, um, but there's nothing about, it, it's not anything that you have to worry about, um, unless you're exceptionally, exceptionally, uh, sensitive. Uh, and so this is a story about a jellyfish-like creature, which has been found to have an anus that forms only when the animal needs to defecate and then it just disappears That is the really spectacular finding here, said Sidney Tam of the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, who made the discovery. There is no documentation of a transient anus in any other animal that I know of. And so Tam believes that the animal might represent an intermediate form between other animals, such as true jellyfish, which only have one gut opening, which acts as both the anus and mouth. But comb jellies, of which this guy is one, uh, they look superficially like jellies, like regular jellyfish, but they're actually from a separate group called ctenophores, um, And so they actually have a gut that is a tube with the mouth and the anus or anuses even uh, separated However, the warty comb jelly, uh, Tam found, doesn't seem to have a persistent anus. It is not visible when the animal is not pooping, says Tam. There's no trace under the microscope. It's invisible to me. And so for the animal... It turns out that there isn't a permanent opening. Instead, when the gut is full, it balloons out and touches the epidermis of the animal, which then causes it to create a slit that temporarily acts as an anus. Because both the gut and epidermis are each only a single cell layer, this doesn't pose a significant problem for the animal. It doesn't have to pull apart a bunch of layers in order to create an opening. And so it actually turns out they seem to do it on kind of a schedule, Uh, once an hour for the five centimeter long adults, and once every 10 minutes or so for the larvae. Uh, Again, Tam believes that this might be how the anus first developed and evolved in animals that now have a permanent uh, alimentary system with both a mouth and an anus that are separated by a um, digestive tract. And so uh, Tam has actually started looking at other comb jellies, but has yet to find any like the the unique warty comb jelly. (laughs) A small and rather humble, but very interesting animal. Okay, so it is time we should take a break and then we will come back and we will talk about some very naughty parrots (laughs) in India. So uh, do stay tuned for that. Um, Hang on for just a moment.
1: Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs.
0: Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S.
1: Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andi Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshley Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJ LP. Bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray. Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yusef Latif, Bix Biderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more.
0: Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest. J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you.
1: Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and author of More Information Than You Require speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all.
0: Okay, we are back and we are now going to switch over and talk about, again, some naughty parrots. (laughs) So apparently in India, there is a rather large, large problem with opium addicted parrots. And so poppy farmers in the state of Madhya Pradesh uh, have been growing poppies, uh, which produce opium, uh, which in the state of India is actually legal. Uh, There are actual, you know, legitimate medical uses that uh, the um, opium is used for. It's not only used to create heroin. Um, (laughs) And so they have reported that they're having problems with parrots making off with their crops. And so uh, it's been reported that some birds make up to 40 visits a day to the fields of flowers. One poppy gives around 20 to 25 grams of opium, but a large group of parrots feed on these plants around 30 to 40 times a day. One poppy cultivator in the Nimuch district of central India told the Indian news site NDTV.com. This affects the produce. These opium addicted parrots are wreaking havoc. <laughs> And, you know, I do feel bad for the actual um, farmers. I mean, clearly this is their actual job. They are creating, you know, they are they are growing poppies for legitimate reasons. I do feel bad for them, but it is also, you do just have to smile at the thought of um, parrots who are stealing poppies in order to get high. Um, at least it made me chuckle and I hope it does you as well. So according to the website, uh, poppy-stealing parrots have actually been a kind of daily scourge with farmers reporting significant losses. Uh, Some parrots have been filmed tearing into unripe poppy pods to access the opium-rich milk within, while others have used their beaks and claws to simply cut off the pods intact and carry them away. Uh, the clever birds actually perch on one tall poppy stalk while they maneuver to another in order to cut off the pod and then fly away with them. Um, I'll actually post a link to the video of that, that I watched this morning, uh, on the Facebook page. And so there are actually even rumors that the birds have learned not to squawk while diving into the fields in order to reduce the chance of being noticed. Now, again, I do feel bad for the farmers. Uh, they haven't been getting any help from officials, so they've been trying to take it upon themselves to kind of deal with this, mostly with a kind of, uh, as they as some put it, a sonic assault. Uh, we beat drums and burst firecrackers to scare them away. We keep a watch on them in night as well. Don't know if they've got addicted to it or something else, noted one farmer. And of course, apparently, this isn't actually a new phenomena this year. Uh, A 2018 article in DNA India uh, indicates that opium-consuming parrots had been observed crashing into tree branches and, quote, lying in the field in a daze uh, until the drug effects wear off. So, yeah. (laughs) Um, Again, feel bad for the farmers. think it's kind of funny uh, to think about... um, drug addicted parrots, even though also kind of feel bad for the parrots, but clearly, you know, they're not doing too bad. Uh, clearly, this is not having a huge detrimental effect on them because they continue to do it. Um, and they continue to do it from year to year. <laughs> um, okay, so let us switch gears completely now uh, to talk about the amazing new discovery that has been made in Mexico. And so while archaeologists have been studying the ruins of the Maya city Chichen Itza for years, it turns out that an important site had been outside of their knowledge. Tips from two local residents pointed them towards an unexplored cave, uh, which had been found to have dozens and dozens of artifacts, uh, bones and burnt offerings to uh, gods. So Chichen Itza is actually a very well-known Maya city. Uh, It is known for the Pyramid El Castillo, and it is situated in the Yucatan Peninsula, which is, of course, kind of the heart of the Maya homeland. And so apparently the cave, uh, which is just under two miles away from El Castillo, was first discovered sometime around 50 years ago. Um, and locals at the time told archaeologist Victor Segovia Pinto about the cave. Um, However, he simply ordered it to be sealed up, uh, kind of wrote a brief report about it, and then it was soon forgotten again, um, you know, by archaeologists. I'm sure that the locals, again, as is always the case in these sorts of stories. Locals were totally aware of its existence this entire time. (laughs) And so it was only last year when locals once again uh, told archaeologists about the location of the cave, which they call um, Balamku, uh, or the jaguar god. And so current archaeologists are uh, pretty much very happy that Pinto didn't conduct any research in the cave, it turns out, uh, because it'll give them the ability to conduct important research uh, using more cutting edge techniques. Uh, So for instance, they can do laser tomography to create a 3D map of the entire system. Um, They can do... um, advanced uh, bioarchaeology and things like that, Um, you know, taking samples of the offerings to see what they actually are, and things like that. So before entering the cave, though, the team performed a six-hour purification ritual in keeping with current local customs. So that's really nice. They were trying to really respect the locals who had basically said, look over here. (laughs) You should really look over here. (laughs) Um, And so the majority of the items, including 155 ceramic incense burners, uh, along with clay boxes and other vessels, will mostly remain in situ at the site. Now, despite its current name, the majority of offerings left in the seven chambers of the cave were most likely left to the Central uh, Central Mexican rain god, Tlaloc. And so um, the archaeologists exploring the newly rediscovered cave are all investigators with the Great Maya Aquifer Project. So it turns out that the Yucatan Peninsula has a vast network of underground caves, rivers, and features like cenotes, uh, which are sort of sinkholes or underground lakes uh, that were once used by the Maya in rituals. And in fact, extremely well-preserved artifacts are often found in cenotes because they've been preserved in low-oxygen waters. Now, it turns out, though, that when the Maya were using these systems, uh, the water levels would have actually been much lower. And so we find evidence underwater. And it's really weird to find these sort of shelves in these caves where you can totally see that someone had been bringing offerings and doing sacrifices. And you're like, but it's, you know, 10 10- you know, it's, it's 20 feet underwater. How did they do that? Well, it turns out that at the time, it wasn't 20 feet underwater, uh, which is one of the reasons that most of the offerings at uh, Balamku would have probably have been to the god of rain, Tlaloc. Um, because again, researchers believe that there was probably a drought experienced by the Maya uh, for a various reasons, uh, including climate change and uh, things that they did to the environment themselves uh, that ultimately contributed to the uh, disillusion of their empire. And so many important buildings, including El Castillo, uh, were actually built on top of or near cenotes. And uh, so they've actually been working on trying to find uh, possible passages under El Castillo to the fact um, to the ancient cenote that is actually underneath that uh, particular Mayan Maya pyramid. Um, and just a sort of a pedantic nerdy note, uh, it is Maya, not Mayan. Um, so uh, most people, it, it's kind of like Canada goose versus Canadian goose. Um, it's just one of those weird kind of uh, quirky things. Anyways, <laughs> uh, it's like you say, um, Sumeria, it's actually just Sumer. Um, and so yeah, anyways, <laughs> so many important buildings, uh, again, uh, were built on uh, cenotes. And so mapping by the aquifer project has just been uh finding all of these amazing connections. And so they've actually discovered the largest continuous series of underwater caves mapped to date. So basically the Yucatan is just kind of Swiss cheese underneath the top layer. Um the team hopes to uh hopes that the data gathered from the cave will give them insight into cultural exchange between the Maya and other Central American cultures, and hopefully they will also be able to learn more about the pre-decline period. So, um, you know, one of the things that they might be able to find are things that are from other parts of Central America or even farther afield. So if you find things that can only be found on the uh, Pacific coast, then you know that they got those from another culture, most likely, and were trading. So that would be very cool. Balamku Will help rewrite the history of Chichen Itza in Yucatan, uh, Deanda predicted during a press conference held in Mexico City this week. So that is very cool. All right, let's switch gears sort of fairly dramatically again uh, to the world of physics. And so researchers at Columbia University have found further evidence to suggest that sound waves actually carry mass mass. Now, this might not seem like a big deal, but it would be uh, another one of those sort of fundamental ideas in physics that would have to be retooled. So the first thing to take away from this though, Is (laughs) with many things in physics, uh, that the findings are based on a mathematical model. So they don't yet represent experimental results. That doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about them. But I think it's important to remember that a lot of times when we talk about physics, physics, uh, quote, experiments, or physics, quote, results, they're from sort of mathematical modeling and things like that. It's not that that's not uh, something that's valid. I just like to be clear about it. So the team of Angelo Esposito, Raphael Krichevsky and Alberto Nicolas uh, uh, published their results recently in the journal Physical Review Letters, and it supports uh, work done by another team last year. So physicists have begun to agree that sound waves do carry energy, but there was no evidence to suggest that they also carry mass. So the first team, which included Nicholas and the physicist Ricardo Penko, used quantum field theory to show that sound waves moving through superfluid helium carry a small amount of mass with them. They found that phonons interacted with a gravitational field in a way that forced them to carry mass as they moved through the material. Uh, And so just as an aside, superfluid helium is a crazy subject in and of itself. Uh, It turns out that if you cool liquid helium to just a few degrees before its boiling point of negative 452 degrees Fahrenheit, yeah, (laughs) it will start to behave in weirs that Ways that really shouldn't be natural. Uh, It begins to climb up and over the sides of dishes. Uh, It can dribble through cracks that are only a molecule thick. Uh, It can remain motionless even as the container holding it is spun. It's just crazy. Uh, And so basically, this is because it is moving towards a Bose-Einstein condensate state. Which basically means that you have a bunch of individual particles, and because you've cooled them enough, they stop moving enough that they kind of start to become almost like a single huge particle rather than a bunch of individual particles, and so then the properties of it change. And so it's very weird. Um, And it's actually a problem, apparently, I had no idea for storing liquid helium because once it becomes a superfluid, it can actually leak out of microscopic cracks in the container holding it. But anyways, getting back to sound waves and mass. The second group of researchers showed that sound waves will carry mass through most materials. They use this as a principle. They used a principle called effective field theory to show that a single watt sound wave moving for one second in water would carry a mass of around uh, around 0.1 milligrams. Now, it was found to be part of the total mass of the system that moved with the wave as it was displaced from one place to another. Now, obviously, that's a very small amount of mass, and because it's part of a greater system, not terribly easily measured on small scales. The researchers have suggested two ways in which this could be tested experimentally. The first is to measure sound waves as they move through a Bose-Einstein condensate um, of something very cold. Now, a better approach may be Their second suggestion, which is to measure the mass carried by sound waves as they move through the earth as part of an earthquake. The immense energy of such waves might mean that the sound waves would carry billions of kilograms of mass, which could possibly be detected on devices that measure gravitational fields. Now, I want to take a minute to sort of go over this uh, idea, because, you know, it's sometimes hard to kind of wrap your uh, mind around, which is the difference between mass and weight. So when you think about billions of kilograms, you probably think, how on earth does that work, that a sound wave could carry that much anywhere. Um, But mass is very different from weight. And we always, you know, forget about that. We use them interchangeably in uh, regular speech. But mass is a measurement of an object's tendency to resist changing its state of motion. Uh, So basically, it's usually referred to as inertia. So mass is the measurement of the amount of force required to change the path of an object. So basically, either if you have a um, if you have a ball that is just sitting there, the uh, amount of energy you need to actually push that and make it start to roll is its mass, um, or to move it from the uh, the direction it's going to another direction, and so it's very different from weight. Weight is the measure of gravity's downward force on an object. Now there is an obvious connection between the two. The connection is that the force of gravity increases with the amount of mass of an object. So basically the more inertia something has, the harder it is to move the more that gravity affects it. And so weight is therefore variable. It depends on where you are. You'd weigh less on the moon or Mars, which have lesser gravitational forces than the Earth, but you would have the same amount of mass. And so it's it's a very weird, you know it's it's both very simple and also really kind of hard to kind of pull apart. Um, But mass isn't the same thing as weight. Um, So it makes it a little bit easier to kind of uh, visualize what could be happening here. So yeah. Um, (laughs) So all of that is to say that, uh, again, physics is really weird. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So um, we have another few minutes and I do want to end with a kind of unfortunate story. I know I said at the beginning that I like to talk about fun and interesting things. Uh, This is still really awesome, but it's I just want to, you know, put it out there that we might be in for a bit of disappointment. So despite the fact that the Insight Lander has been doing amazing so far, there has been a bit of a hitch. It turns out that the drill uh, that they have been using has uh, basically, it's hit a rock. And so it hit a rock earlier, and it was actually able to kind of get around that little rock and move it enough that it could continue to actually, um, you know, continue to drill down. But it looks like the uh, drill has basically hit a bigger possibly uh, a rock that might not be able to be moved and if that's the uh, if that is actually true then there's going to be some real problems. Um, Basically they're trying to get the heat flow probe in uh, to the ground and so it's actually equipped with this fun thing called a penetrometer. (laughs) which is an autonomous electrically powered hammer that drives itself deeper into the ground with each pulse. So basically, a gear stretches its main spring, producing the hammering uh, forward the hammering forward thrusting action, and then a second spring absorbs the recoil, which is very cool, except for the fact that, uh, on its way into the depths, the mole seems to have hit a stone tilted about 15 degrees and pushed it aside or past it, said uh, HP3 principal investigator Tillman Spawn in a DLR press release. However, <laughs> that was only the first one. Um, the mole then encountered another rock further down and... And hasn't been able to get much further than that. Uh, It turns out that by the end of the four hour drilling window, uh, they had done about 4,000 hammer blows. But the mole had managed to drill down to a depth of merely 50 centimeters or just under 20 inches, uh, which is uh, far short of what they were hoping for. This is not very good news for me, because although the hammer is proving itself, the Mars environment is not very favorable favorable to us, says uh, Jersey Gryzkorsk, chief engineer of uh, Astronika, which is a Polish company that actually created uh, the uh, hammering mechanism uh, that they've been calling the mole And uh, so it turns out that you can only do it for about four hours and then you have to let it cool down. Um, And so it could be up to a two day cooling period. And so um, hopefully they're going to try and just keep going and see if they can just get by this rock. Um, But if it doesn't get far enough down, that's gonna be bad news. Um, They cannot relocate to another position around the lander. It's kind of the way that the system is, is that it's set up that that's kind of where it needs to be. Um, And so the system is not designed to move or retract into any other position. So that is frustrating. (laughs) But you know, it could be that the next session is a breakthrough and everything goes fine. But for now, uh, it's a wait and see game. All right, so it is that time where I need to uh, stop talking and move on. Please do stay tuned for civil politics coming up next. Good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for
1: listening.